Welcome to another public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, Professor Paul Stallard from the University of Bath takes a critical look at child mental health services by examining the evidence, practice and future of cognitive behavioural therapy. We're very fortunate to have had Paul Stallard join the university's School for Health. It really is a very great pleasure to welcome you, Professor Stallard, and to invite you to present your inaugural lecture, Cognitive Behavioural Therapy with Children and Young People. Professor Stallard. Um, Thank you, Deputy Vice-Chancellor, for that very kind invitation. And uh, I'd also like to extend a very warm welcome to everybody who has come here tonight, particularly on such a glorious evening, um, to listen to this inaugural lecture. An inaugural lecture is a celebration. It's an opportunity to share an area of research with a broad audience, both within and beyond the university. It provides an opportunity to reflect on some work and to consider future developments And it's an important milestone in an academic career. It's also a milestone that personally I never thought that I would ever achieve. At school I was very much a disaffected student. I was unmotivated. I drifted through school doing as little as I could. I left with three A-levels, all grade Ds, and I scraped into university through clearing. My course, Behavioural Science, was my first introduction to psychology. And interesting as psychology was at that stage, the attractions of the newfound freedom of university life resulted in me continuing to pay very limited attention to my studies. It was, however, in the third year of my degree that my interest in psychology, and in particular with children and young people, suddenly ignited. The third year of my course was a placement And I was fortunate enough to work as a nursing assistant at a centre for emotionally and behaviourally disturbed children in Birmingham called the Charles Burns Clinic. It was during that placement that I saw at first hand just how psychology could make such a real difference to the lives of children and young people. And some of these children were very distressed and very disturbed. I returned to my final year at university with a new determination – My future was now clear. I decided to work, I achieved a good degree, went on to complete the training in clinical psychology, and I have continued to work with children and young people ever since. My interest in child mental health has continued, and the challenge of developing effective interventions to help this very needy group of children continues to interest, excite, and to challenge me. Throughout this time, I've been very fortunate to have a very supportive and encouraging family. They support me throughout all my wild ideas and through all the activities which I become involved with. I've also had the opportunity to work with many experienced and skilled colleagues, many of whom are here tonight, some unfortunately who can't make it, and others, sadly, who've passed on. I've also been very privileged, though, to meet a number of young people and their carers, and from them I have learned a great deal. 
To all these people, I'd like to express my thanks before I start tonight. And I'd like to highlight that directly or indirectly, many of the people here and many of the people I've met will have contributed to some of the ideas I'm going to share with you tonight. In this lecture, I intend to highlight what I see to be some of the real pressing issues in terms of child mental health services. I intend to do this by critically examining the evidence-based practice and delivery of cognitive behaviour therapy, the therapy that is most strongly backed by evidence at the present time. I'm going to provide you with an overview of cognitive behaviour therapy with children. I'm going to then highlight the limited evidence base that is behind child health interventions at the present time. And then I'm going to start to raise some concerns about the current training and competence of the workforce at present in terms of being able to deliver this form of intervention. And finally, I'm going to end by suggesting that we ought to be thinking differently about cognitive behaviour therapy. And I'm going to provide some ideas about how we can start to extend the use of that model so that more people would be able to benefit Now, to start at the very beginning, many of you will be very familiar with the term cognitive behaviour therapy. It seems to be something that is in the press all the time. And I had a look around some of the popular press to try to find some of the headlines which people are going to be exposed to. So if we start with the sun, Britain's got the blues. This came out in September 2005, And it was a report on a a paper which Richard Layard had presented which suggested that 10,000 extra therapists were needed to combat the problem of adult depression in the country at the present time. The therapists which they were looking for were cognitive behaviour therapists. Similarly, only last month... In March, the BBC ran a story at the end of the, end of the, end of the month basically suggesting that computer behaviour therapy was required and should be available to all from the health services in England from April. And the quote which they have is that from April, all primary care trusts will have to provide computerised cognitive behaviour therapy for patients who may benefit. These headlines are about adults, but they start to give us an idea that CBT seems to be something which is coming to the forefront and is becoming very publicly um, aware at the present time. So what is cognitive behaviour therapy? Well, let me turn to the popular press again, because the Daily Mirror ran a story which gave us some ideas about what it was. So the Daily Mirror have informed us that cognitive behaviour therapy concentrates on changing negative beliefs in order to help you function better. If your glass is always half empty or you think that life has stacked the odds against you, a CBT therapist will challenge that assumption and help you change it. By helping you to think more positively, you will feel and behave more positively. Now, as in February, I've got some key elements in there. Obviously, there's other bits which we would like to add. But the Daily Mail also provides us with some understanding about what is cognitive behaviour therapy. And they provided this as a description, that unlike traditional psychotherapies, CBT does not dwell on past events or traumas. Instead, the focus is on the patient's fearful and negative thoughts. The therapist helps the patient deal with these by thinking positively. 
It takes between 6 to 16 sessions, but by the end, the patient is cured. (laughs) Well, I wish mine were. Okay, well, let's just find out a little bit more about what we really mean by cognitive behaviour therapy, because essentially CBT is concerned with the relationship between what we think, how we feel, and what we do. And we know that there are certain ways of thinking that are associated with very strong, unpleasant feelings or with a variety of emotional disorders. In turn, these thoughts and feelings affect our behaviour so that we might act inappropriately or aggressively, for example, or we might avoid those situations in which we feel anxious. Similarly, if, we are socially, if we're feeling depressed, we might become socially withdrawn. In CBT, we're particularly concerned with the cognitions, the cognitions which might be driving these emotions and these behaviours. And one set of cognitions which we're particularly interested in are the cognitions which we would be having about ourselves, about the world, about the future. And these are what typically are referred to by Beck as the cognitive triad. We also have different levels of cognitions. And there are going to be a variety of these which cognitive behaviour therapists are going to be particularly interested in examining and identifying. So some of the ones which we're particularly interested in are the core beliefs or the schemas, which we, these are the deep-seated, fairly rigid and fixed cognitions that form our blueprint for thinking and for looking and exploring our world. These beliefs lead us to make some assumptions, some predictions about what's going to happen in situations and events, and they lead us to start to look for evidence that is going to support those predictions. In turn, these Assumptions generate a variety of automatic thoughts. And these are the thoughts which are the most accessible ones in terms of therapy. These are the thoughts that race through our heads, uh, provide a sort of description as we're preparing or whilst we're undertaking tasks or challenges. Now, these thoughts can be positive, they can be balanced, they can be very empowering, or alternatively, they can be predominantly negative They can be distorted, they can be disempowering, and they can be very disabling. It is these biases that have been found to be associated with many mental health disorders. Thus, the content of these becomes paramount to the CBT therapist. People with obsessive-compulsive disorder may, for example, have many cognitions which are associated with an inflated sense of responsibility. Their obsessional behaviours, their compulsive thoughts serve to prevent bad things from happening. If they do things in a certain way, if they think in a certain way, then they will prevent bad things from happening is, is the way they think about things. Similarly, people with anxiety disorders tend to have lots of cognitions which are about threat, which are about danger, a sense that bad things are going to be happen and that generates the anxiety. Through cognitive behaviour therapy, the process of one of trying to help people to identify the content and the nature of their thoughts. This is done through a process of Socratic exploration where the questioning helps the person to start to question the nature of their thoughts. The reality is then tested through a process of experimentation. 
The experiment will then put these cognitions in a new light. There may not be perhaps as much evidence to support them as at first thought. The cognition is then reappraised, and then we develop a reconstruction, a new set of cognitions, a new set of beliefs, which will hopefully be more balanced and more functional. Now, cognitive behaviour therapy was originally developed for use with adults, and it was originally developed from that sphere of work. Now, in order to try and use cognitive behaviour therapy with children and young people, we need to make a number of very important modifications. We need to try to make sure that CBT can be simplified. It is a very verbal therapy. It is a very abstract and a very complicated therapy. And in order to try to understand and to, and to help children use this, we need to make it simple. We're also very clear that talking is not always the preferred media of many young people and adolescents. So we need to develop more nonverbal materials, more nonverbal ways of trying to help people engage in these processes. Similarly, we need to make sure that the abstract concepts which are inherent in CBT can relate to the child's everyday life. So we'll be looking at using many concrete examples and metaphors to try to help get some of these complicated messages across. Now, I'll give you some examples from um, my book, Think Good, Feel Good, which will give you an idea about some of the visual ways in which we can try and use um, CBT with children. So very simply, if you ask a young person, what are you thinking, you get an answer, nothing. So what you try and do is to give them something like this, which is, becomes a way of saying, what could we put into those thought bubbles which are about, above this character's head? Children as young as four or five know that that is a thought bubble and that it represents what the person is thinking. So immediately we have got a way of trying to communicate with children about their thoughts by a very simple technique, a thought bubble. This character here is one of the characters in the book. There's three main characters, and this is the thought tracker who is concerned with trying to help children identify their thoughts. This is something about emotions. And again, if you talk to children about emotions, they aren't very good at understanding the different sort of emotions which they have. So this is a worksheet which very simply tries to help the young person identify some of the feelings and some of the emotions and some of the signals which help them to understand how they're feeling. So this is the thought finder, the feeling finder, sorry. And what we're looking at here is just three very simple things. What does your face look like when you're feeling sad? So we're looking at the facial expression. What does your body do to show that you're sad? So we're looking at the body signals which accompany this. And finally... How do you behave when you're actually feeling sad or unhappy? What do you do? Do you withdraw, go quiet, want to be on your own? And again, simple worksheets like this provide a very useful way of helping children to tune in and understand the different emotions they have. I mentioned earlier that one of the things which happens is that we have these distorted, these biased, these dysfunctional ways of thinking, and we end up in some particular traps. To try to help children understand this, we've, we've come up with a variety of different simple labels for them so that there is a whole set of problems which are associated with predicting failure. 
This is a very simple way of trying to get the concept across to children that sometimes they become mind readers. They think they know what somebody else is thinking. So a very simple example, I know she doesn't like me. Well, you don't know. You're actually being a mind reader who is making some form of prediction. Similarly, another thinking error they might make is this one, which is the fortune teller. And the fortune teller is great because they know exactly what is going to happen. But often the fortune teller knows that the things which are happening are going to be the negative things. So if I go out tonight, nobody will sit next to me and nobody will talk to me. Similarly, we might want to help children to develop alternative behaviours and problem-solving skills. And again, this is a very simple way of trying to get children to, to write down their problem and to generate a variety of different solutions they could use to try to address those. Now, it's quite interesting to see how this book has been changed as it's gone around the world. And in Japan, the characters of these, which are very similar to the sort of original characters we used in the book with the skateboarding persona. Sorry, that was China. This is Japan. And it's very interesting because in Japan, we suddenly find that the fault track has become a very young Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> it's, it's just quite fascinating. And when it actually gets to Greece, the feeling finder, which is the one right at the very top, has become a mythical god. And it's just the way that they decided that these were going to relate better to the children's understanding and the characters which they would be more familiar with. Well, okay, in addition to developing appropriate materials, the process of undertaking CBT with children requires quite a lot of attention. And what we tend to try to summarise this with is by an acronym called PRECISE. And... Basically, what we're trying to do here is to think about the process which is going behind the delivery of these particular methods. The P is for partnership. It's a partnership between the therapist, the child, and the family, and it emphasizes the collaborative and supportive nature of cognitive behavior therapy. R highlights the need to ensure that CBT is pitched at the right developmental level so that it matches the child's verbal skills, their reasoning ability, their ability to think from somebody else's perspective. The E is about empathy and really trying to get alongside the child to understand the world as they see it. C is about the creative side of cognitive behaviour therapy, in which the ideas and the concepts are going to be tailored around the child's interests. I emphasises the investigative, the experimentation which goes through this, because the process of learning through doing is so important. S highlights the, the process of self-discovery and reminds us to build upon the child's ideas and their own resources. There are things out there already the children have which we can build upon. And E is very important. The idea here is that we want to make therapy enjoyable. So much therapy is serious, it's dull it's going to not be particularly engaging for children. And there is one final point. <laughs> and we need to consider the cognitive level of the child because sometimes... <laughs> sometimes it could be quite limited. And we need to ensure that our CBT is very much matched to that of the child. Now, 
As I mentioned earlier, CBT is increasingly being seen as the wonder therapy for many mental health problems. This reputation has been fueled by a lot of the reports which have come out from the National Institute of Clinical Excellence. This is an independent group which undertakes detailed and very systematic reviews of research and makes recommendations about best practice. I'm delighted that NICE has turned their attention to child mental health and increasingly over the last few years we have seen a number of recommendations coming through. In these, cognitive behaviour therapy is repeatedly coming out as one of the key interventions of choice. And as important as it is, I think that we need to look a little behind some of the headlines which are coming out in the NICE recommendations to actually sound a note of caution. The Eating Disorders Review, which was published in 2004, made this as a recommendation. Adolescents with bulimia nervosa may be treated with CBT, BN, that's a particular sort of cognitive behaviour therapy, adapted as needed to suit their age, circumstances and level of development, and including the family as appropriate. Very clear, very strong statement. But there are actually no published randomised controlled trials evaluating CBT for the treatment of bulimia nervosa in adolescents at the present time. This recommendation is a consensus statement from the expert group who produced the guideline. And I know that if I had 12 psychologists, for example, in a room, we would have 13 different answers. The Obsessive Compulsive Disorder Guideline was published in 2005. Children and young people with OCD with moderate to severe functional impairment should be offered CBT including um, exposure and response prevention, that involves the family or carers and is adapted to suit the developmental age of the child as the treatment of choice. Very clear statement. It's actually based on one randomised controlled trial in which 77 children were involved. 77 children were making those statements about the treatment of choice. Depression, published 2005. Children and young people with moderate to severe depression should be offered as a first-line treatment a specific psychological intervention, CBT. Now, this says children and young people. But when you actually review the studies that have been included in the NICE guideline, none of the studies in the review involved any child younger than the age of nine. Most of the children were aged 12 to 16. So it might be something we need to think about for adolescents, but the generalisation of that down to the younger age group starts to become a little questionable. Similarly, there was a guideline on post-traumatic stress disorder published in 2005. And again, young children and young people with PTSD, including those who've been sexually abused, should be offered a course of trauma-focused cognitive behaviour therapy adapted appropriately to suit their age, circumstances and level of development. Well, again, when you look at this, six of the seven randomised controlled trials which they included in the review were focused upon children who had been sexually abused and over 90% of those children were girls. So it raises the question about do these methods work with children who've been involved in other forms of trauma, and similarly, do they work equally as effectively with boys? Another very important question raised by these reviews 
is whether the findings from these sort of very academic, very well thought through research studies actually apply to everyday life, everyday clinics, the sort of people who I would see in my clinic at the Royal United Hospital. Well, I did a review last year on post-traumatic stress disorder, and we looked at the exclusion criteria, the people who were not allowed to participate in these studies for a variety of different reasons. And we found this, that people were excluded from these randomized trials looking at CBT for post-traumatic stress disorder if they had developmental delay, if they weren't fluent in English, if they were taking medication, or they had a comorbid anxiety or depressive disorder, whether they were considered too disruptive to take part in the intervention, if they had no long-term caretaker, their carer was abusing substances or unwilling to take part in treatment sessions. Well, that's most of my cases. (laughs) And many of the children who are actually referred to specialist child mental services, mental health services, would be excluded from these treatment trials, which have got very narrowly defined limits. So, I think that What we can sort of say about the evidence base is that CBT does have the strongest evidence base. If I took some of the other forms of therapy, they would be sort of similarly embarrassed by the absence of very robust data that is behind their effectiveness. But there are comparatively few trials in which CBT has been compared with other interventions. And as such, we don't know whether CBT is more effective than some of the interventions which we currently have available. Although many treatment trials are reported, changes in questionnaires tend to be very, very significant. You get big reductions on questionnaire scores. But does this really mean that the child is now functioning much better in everyday life at school, in social relationships? Similarly, we know that CBT does not suit everybody. About one in five of those who start CBT will drop out prematurely. Some of those will get better and won't need any further help. But for a number of those, they've probably dropped out because it doesn't suit them. And similarly, we also know that of those who finish and complete CBT programs, about one in four do not actually positively respond to it. Now, NICE is also keen to educate and empower service users, and it produces lay summaries of each of these guidelines. Now, these can provide very useful ways for families and carers to discuss treatment options with child mental health professionals. But it starts to raise a very interesting question that if a family came along and said, I'd like CBT, please, for the treatment of X, Y, and Z, whether we are actually able to provide that. Now, with the help of a number of national organisations, I recently led a national survey on the practice of cognitive behaviour therapy in child mental health services. And the results of the survey, we basically took about one in ten of child mental health workers up and down the country, and we looked at those results, and they're very disappointing. What we found was that about one in five of the people currently working in specialist mental health services saw cognitive behaviour therapy as their dominant therapeutic approach, When I say dominant, I mean that they use that with about 60% or more of their caseload. It has also been estimated that there are about 140 accredited cognitive behaviour therapists 
who are competent to work with children in the UK at the present time. That figures come from the British Association of Behavioural and Cognitive Psychotherapy, which is the national group, which is really the leading organisation for CBT. It's about 140 competent therapists. So it starts to raise a question that the availability of specialist child-focused CBT is actually quite limited. But another important issue is, well, okay, then it might be limited, but what's the quality? What's it like? Now, this rather dapper-looking gentleman is Aaron T. Beck. He's the grandfather of cognitive behaviour therapy, and he's basically hailed by many to be one of the, probably one of the best CBT therapists um, there ever has been. I'm not quite sure how he would sort of engage with young people in that sort of attire, but he's obviously a very splendid, sort of a dapper sort of gentleman. So it would be very nice to think that all the CBT therapists were going to be equally as good as Dr. Beck. But the results actually aren't very encouraging because from the survey, what we found was that only 21% of those people who were practicing cognitive behaviour therapy had actually undertaken any specialist post-qualification training in it. And only 30% described their expertise as good or fairly good. 30%. And these are the people who we're going to to try to sort out our mental health issues. The assumption of a skilled and competent workforce is starting to become questionable. And I'm afraid it gets even worse. Because ongoing development of skills comes about through good supervision. Supervision brings those skills, keeps them sharp, keeps them maintained. And what we found in the survey was that it's only half of those who are using CBT as their dominant approach Only half had a CBT supervisor, the other half did not. And if you actually look on the BABC, the British Association of Behavioural and Cognitive Psychotherapists website, there are currently 11 accredited therapists who were registered on that site. And this is the national organisation. So these findings raise some very, very serious questions about the skills, the knowledge, the competence of those who practice in CBT. There is the real danger that without sufficiently attending to issues of training and supervision, that cognitive behaviour therapy will be practised in a less than desirable way and that its effectiveness will be compromised. So we're left with this. A very uncomfortable situation. You meet a therapist. You see a face. And then you have to decide whether you trust them or not. And that's a hard call. But behind all this, there's actually an even bigger problem. And the problem's this. That there is a tenth of the children in this country who have a significant mental health disorder, who would benefit from some form of intervention from specialist child mental health services. There is a national survey of child mental health which was undertaken a few years ago in which 10,000 children were assessed and This report here, which appeared in June 2006, highlights the extent of that. 1.1 million children suffering. Now, this survey is the biggest which has been undertaken in this country, needless to say, and they have also followed children up at various time frames. 
And for these children, they followed a number of them up, the children who had significant problems, significant disorders, 18 months later, to find out what had happened to them. And we found this, that out of 100 children who had significant disorders when they did the initial assessment, 22 were actually seen by specialist child mental health services, 22%. The rest with significant disorders didn't come to the attention of specialist services in which I work. Some of those will be seen by other professionals. There are a number of um, community paediatricians, school nurses, etc., who will be working with some of these families. There's no doubt of that. But there were over 50% of these who had significant disorders who had seen no one at all in that 18-month period. Now, out of those 22 who come to a specialist service, four of those will drop out. They'll start therapy, they'll drop out, and another four will not respond to treatment. So out of every 100 who have significant problems, only 14 are actually going to positively benefit from specialist clinic-based services as we're currently providing them. Now this poses a real challenge for service provision. And I think that there's five different issues which we need to start to think about if we're going to make a real difference to the mental health of our children. Firstly, there is a need to increase the availability of effective interventions. Comparatively few children with significant mental health disorders receive specialist interventions from CAMS. So how can we start to make these more available? Even if more children were referred to specialist CAMS, the service could not see them. Specialist CAMS is a very small service. Its capacity is limited. So we need to start to think about alternative ways of providing and delivering interventions. Similarly, we need to increase accessibility. We need to move away from the idea of just providing services in specialist clinics. Clinic-based services are off-putting for many, and continuing that sort of clinic-based model will continue to maintain the perceived exclusivity of CAMS. Whilst we also need to make sure that we provide effective interventions for those with the most severe disorders, we also need to have a shift in emphasis, a shift towards early intervention and prevention to stop some of those problems developing or escalating. And finally, it's actually essential that the treatment integrity is maintained. Professionals need to work within their sphere of competence and we need to ensure that interventions are going to be delivered by professionals with the right skills and the right support. So let us just explore how cognitive behaviour therapy could be delivered in perhaps some alternative ways. Now, at present, cognitive behaviour therapy tends to be conceptualised very much as a unitary concept rather than a spectrum of cognitive interventions. People either practise cognitive behaviour therapy or they don't. Conceptualising CBT as a spectrum allows us to start to think more clearly how CBT expertise can be matched to the problem severity and how it can be provided in different ways to different populations by different people. So if we started right at the bottom here, the universal preventative approach, CBT could be provided as a universal preventative intervention. 
children are taught basic skills, some of the inherent skills in CBT, as perhaps life skills designed to help them become more emotionally resilient. Preventative interventions can be delivered in schools to whole classes of children where the majority are not displaying any significant mental health disorders, but they might go on to develop them. The next level might be a selective prevention, so that we're actually targeting more closely upon those children who are at higher risk of developing mental health problems. We have a lot of information about this now, so that we know that, for example, children um, who've got some degree of learning problems are going to be at an increased risk of developing mental health problems. So we could target special schools. Then we might need to think about early intervention for those children with mild or moderate problems who could be helped, but they don't need the interventions of specialist clinics. The fourth level is treatment provided for children with severe disorders, typically provided within specialist clinics. And then we're going to have this group who are going to require highly specialist cognitive behavioural interventions. These are going to be the children who've got chronic comorbid disorders and they're going to be quite resistant to interventions. Now, if we adopted such approach, it helps us to start to also unpick and define some of the therapeutic skills that might be required to address those problems at each of the different levels. So, again, right at the very bottom, underpinning any specific therapeutic intervention are the basic counselling skills, the ability to listen, to reflect, to acknowledge, to validate, to accept that a child has significant difficulties. Then there would be foundation CBT skills, which are basically developing an understanding of the cognitive model, that thoughts affect feelings, affect behaviour, and that there are biased and dysfunctional cognitions, and that there is a process of collaboration and experimentation, which is part of the process of bringing about change. Then these skills would be sharpened up at the next level, where we're looking at basic cognitive behaviour therapy skills, where we're trying now to think about some of the specific skills which might be helpful to deliver structured, standardised programmes. Then we would have the intermediate level, and this is where we start to get into more therapeutic, individually constructive interventions, where the process, where I talked about that precise process, starts to become more important. We need to have a greater understanding of some of the different models and a more in-depth understanding and development of specific skills. And again, these would need to be developed through ongoing supervised practice. And then finally, right at the top, there would have to be advanced level cognitive behaviour therapy skills. And these are the ones which are going to be individually constructed. We'd be talking about things like formulation-based CBT, multiple models, perhaps schema work, perhaps something like trauma-focused CBT. Now, by way of an example, I'm just going to share with you two services which we are currently providing here in Bath and North East Somerset, which give us an idea about how we could actually try and develop this spectrum of CBT skills and expertise. The first is a universal school-based preventative CBT programme called Friends, and it teaches children skills in three main areas. Cognitively, it helps children to identify their anxiety-increasing thoughts and to replace these with more helpful ways of thinking. 
At the emotional level, it helps children to identify their anxious feelings and to learn some alternative ways of managing them. And at the behavioural level, it's helping children to learn to face and overcome their challenges rather than avoiding them. Now, this Friends programme is an Australian programme and it has been very well evaluated. There are a number of randomised, robust, controlled trials which have been undertaken and it has been endorsed by the World Health Organisation in a systematic review of preventative programmes they undertook in 2004. A recently published three-year follow-up of children found that those children who took part in the Friends programme did become more emotionally resilient and were less likely to develop subsequent problems than children who didn't have this. And yet, despite the evidence base behind it, this sort of programme has not been widely used in the UK. We've pioneered the use of Friends in Bath and North East Somerset, and over the past four years, we've had some very, very encouraging and significant results. In terms of availability, this 10-week programme, which we provide in schools, has been provided to over 2,500 9 to 10-year-old children. The capacity to deliver it has come from developing good links with the school nursing team and, again, good links with the local schools. The school nurses have been trained to deliver and are supervised in the delivery of this programme. It's been accessed in over 30 different schools and it's been provided to over 80 classes of children now. It's been provided as a universal programme, so we're moving away from the stigmatisation of trying to identify children and targeting those to a general class approach. And in terms of quality, this has been maintained by initial and ongoing training and regular supervision. And there's also a commitment to regular evaluation, so that each year we will be evaluating some aspect of the programme just to demonstrate that the gains and the effectiveness is still there. This is a programme which has won various national awards. I think we've won five national awards for this. And it is now beginning to be rolled out throughout the UK and Scotland. And in fact, we were in Scotland at the beginning of this year, at the beginning of this week, training people to run the programme. Now, for those children who are already displaying mild and moderate problems, we actually need a more individual and perhaps a more intensive form of intervention. Many of these children won't need to be referred to specialist CAMs, but they will need a structured, systematic intervention. And a number of these children will also be very difficult to engage. They won't want to sit and talk about their difficulties, their worries, their problems. They will want to deny those. So we have to come up with some fairly engaging, attractive ways to try to engage with them. Now, a programme which we've recently developed is this, which is called Think, Deal, Foo. Think, Deal, Foo. Think, Feel, Do, um, which is an interactive DVD based upon cognitive behaviour therapy principles, which is designed to help children understand and identify their cognitions and to challenge some of their unhelpful ways of thinking, to understand their emotions and to develop different ways to manage them, and to learn different ways of dealing with problems and coping. And again, we're trying to develop this as a programme which can be provided by non-mental health specialists who we train and we supervise. And these are people like school nurses, special educational needs coordinators in schools, um, connections workers, educational psychologists as well. 
And at present, we're trying to target this program on children who have got some form of mild-moderate learning problem but are actually in a mainstream school. Now, we're in the process of evaluating it at the moment, but I'll just give you a a sort of quick idea about what might be involved in this program, just so that you can get a feel of of what we're trying to do here. Okay, so this is the sort of... I'm, I'm just leaping into the middle of a particular session here. And in this particular session, what they're having to do here is to complete this positive diary. So you type into this positive diary to try and identify some of the good positive things that have happened to you. Now, after we've done that, we're going to move on, and I'll just give you a flavour of what happens. Do you remember last time you found out how you can have positive or negative thoughts? Well, you've probably worked out that if you think positive thoughts, you feel good. And if you think negative thoughts, you feel bad. Well, we can't change what we feel, but we can change what we think. So, if we can change unhelpful negative thoughts into more helpful ones, we'll feel good. See if you can think Boris the Bulldog happy. Okay, so... Everyone will laugh at me if I wear these. These are rubbish. I wish I'd bought the other pair. I look cool and groovy in these. I hate parties because I'm rubbish at games. I hope Sam isn't going to be there. I can't wait to go to the party. I wish it was geography. I'm rubbish at history. I hate homework. I did a good job with that homework. Should get a good mark. Boris feel a whole lot better. It's hard to think positively all the time, and it's easy to get trapped into thinking negatively. So we all need to know how to spot these thinking traps, and we've found five of them to watch out for. Click on them to find out more. Okay, so these are some of the sort of cognitive biases which I was talking about earlier, and I'll just give you a couple of uh, examples just to show you what happens here. So let's just go to our mind readers. Mind readers. Sometimes we get trapped into believing that we already know what other people are thinking. Or we expect things to go wrong. Like thinking, I don't want to go to the party because I know no one will talk to me. Okay, another very common one, blowing things up. Blowing things up. This trap makes negative things seem much bigger than they really are. Like, I dropped my books and I thought the whole class was laughing at me. Okay, so what we try and do here is that we're trying to give information, it's interactive, the young people are involved, they're moving around a screen, they're picking up things. Trying to work out which thinking trap goes with each thought. Luke went on a school trip to a great theme park. His mum asked if he had a good day. Luke said, no, I didn't like my sandwiches. Oh dear. Bad sandwiches, it's negative glasses, that one. I'll show you one more, you might get this. I look stupid in these trainers. I look stupid in these trainers. What might that be? It's the mind reader, because he thinks other people think he's going to look stupid in these trainers. Okay, so I'm going to leave that one now, but it gives you an idea about what we can start to think about in terms of delivering interventions, perhaps in different formats, perhaps in different ways, perhaps as an opportunity to try to engage young people who are going to be very reluctant to take part in any form of therapy.
Now, previous lecture, I hope that I've been able to start to highlight some of the significant difficulties which I think we're currently facing with child mental health services. There is a media hype around cognitive behaviour therapy and increasingly it is being hailed as a wonder therapy for a variety of different mental health problems. With children, the evidence is more limited, but I do still hang on to this. But Phil Graham, in a review in 2005, said that at this point in time, <coughs> CBT for children and young people has established itself as the form of evidence most strongly backed by scientific evidence. Now, I think that that may be the situation, but I hope I highlighted for you that we have a very big agenda we can't be complacent. There is much to be done. And I think that there's probably three key issues which we need to tackle over the next five years. Firstly, we need to improve effectiveness of treatment. We need to understand more about cognitive behaviour therapy. The idea of whether cognitive behaviour therapy works or not is a simplistic and a meaningless question. What we need to understand is which specific CBT strategies delivered in what particular way, by which particular level of competence or in which particular media, in which settings, for what particular problems, for which children and young people are effective in bringing about change in which domain. It's a complicated question, but it's the question which we need to start to unpick and already it's beginning to happen. There's been some very recent studies and trials which have looked at the treatment of adolescent depression. And interestingly, what they found in these recent studies is that the children with severe depression do not seem to respond particularly well to cognitive behaviour therapy. They respond better to medication at that severe stage. However, if they have a tendency for suicidal ideation, suicidal thinking, the medication tends to make it worse and those children are much better to have cognitive behaviour therapy and we find that they get to the same situation six months later. It just happens slightly slower. So we're starting to unravel a little bit about severity, different sorts of symptoms and what sort of intervention might be appropriate. The second thing we need to do is to improve quality. We need to ensure that cognitive behaviour therapy, when it is provided, is done so in a way which does not compromise it. We need an appropriately trained and skilled workforce. The survey, I think, confirmed what a lot of us had already suspected, but it was gloomy reading. We need people who've got defined levels of competence and defined levels of expertise, whose practice is adequately supervised. And I'm very pleased that the Department of Health has been very interested in the results of this survey. And they are quite keen to try to take this issue forward nationally, to try to think about the development of national training. And the British Association of Behaviour and Cognitive Psychotherapists are also taking the issue of the development of supervised practice quite seriously, and that's now become a priority for them. We also need to increase availability. We do have cognitive behaviour therapy available. We do know that it seems to bring about a lot of positive changes, but we can't just have it being delivered by a specialist workforce in specialist clinics. We do need to think about unpicking the different levels of cognitive behaviour therapy and matching those to the different needs of the children so that we can make it available in more non-clinical settings, 
we can provide preventative and early interventions as well as treatment, and that we can start to provide it in a range of child-friendly formats. Now, by addressing these issues, I hope that we will begin to start to make more of a positive impact upon the mental health of our children. Thank you for your time and your attention. <laughs>